Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Please pray with me. Dear Father in heaven, we ask you to join us here this evening, and we thank you for keeping your promise and being here with us as we gather. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a child, it was the songs from the classic stage musicals that provided much of the soundtrack of my life. We didn't go to the theater all that much, although seeing 42nd Street at the Harlequin Dinner Theater apparently left an indelible impression. But the songs were playing in our house constantly, My Fair Lady, South Pacific, Annie Get Your Gun, I knew and still know all of them by heart. Of course, when you just hear the songs and don't watch the stories play out, it's easy to miss the details of what's actually going on. How the pajama game is about a struggle between a labor union and management at what amounts to a sweatshop. Or that Fiddler on the Roof is about a traditionalist father trying and ultimately failing to resist the liberalization of his faith and family. And that's to say nothing of the song lyrics, which are often full of double entendre and innuendo and erudite literary references. For instance, there's a song in The Music Man in which Professor Harold Hill who has just been rejected by the local librarian on whom he's trying to work his charms, he sings about the kind of girl that he wants and the kind of girl that he does not want. The song is called The Sadder But Wiser Girl, and it goes right over a child's head. He sings that the last thing he wants is a, quote, wide-eyed, wholesome, innocent female. No, sir. Instead, he says, he smiles when the gal with a touch of sin walks in. And then the line that I sang out loud for years and years before I had any clue what it meant. I hope and I pray, Hill sings, for Hester to win just one more A. The sadder but wiser girl for me. Looking back, I don't know what I thought that song was about. Or that line, anyway, I guess I thought maybe Professor Hill was hoping that some girl named Hester would do well enough in school that she'd graduate and he could be with her, maybe, something like that. It wasn't until I read The Scarlet Letter, years later, that I made the connection between a girl named Hester and her touch of sin. Now, The Scarlet Letter is a classic work of American fiction written by Nathaniel Hawthorne, published in 1850, set in the Puritan Massachusetts Bay Colony. The novel begins with Hester Prynne, a young woman who gives birth to a baby out of wedlock 
and therefore is publicly shamed. She is required because of her sin to wear a scarlet letter A on her dress for the rest of her life. A for adulteress. Now we should note here, just for the record for posterity, that Hawthorne was specifically trying to impugn the Puritans, who were in fact not stodgy, mean, sexually prudish or cold, or incapable of fun, or even exuberant worship. It's just that they insisted on, get ready for it, biblical morality in terms of sex and marriage. Therefore, elite society felt the need to make fun of them, Twitter didn't invent yet, therefore you have the scarlet letter. It's basically the equivalent of a pointed finger and a look at these weirdos. And it's not so different today. But in any event, the illustration holds. That's the A that Harold Hill wants his Hester to earn. A scarlet one. Not a good grade. He doesn't want a mark of qualification. It's a mark of sin. Which brings us perfectly to Ash Wednesday. It is the height of counterintuition, as I'm sure you noticed, that we read this particular teaching of Jesus's from Matthew's Gospel at this service. Every single year, we all feel the same discordance, and it forms the backbone of the Ash Wednesday sermon. We have to explain what it is we're about to do in light of Jesus's command. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, whenever you pray, whenever you fast, don't look dismal like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces to show other people what they're doing. Don't do that. Truly, I tell you, you have received your reward, but... When you fast, when you pray, when you give alms, wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who sees in secret. Now we know, even as we read what we're about to do, what we have in fact gathered here to do tonight, we're about to come up here and disfigure our faces. We're about to practice our piety before others. Aren't we? Well, no, that's why Ash Wednesday needs a sermon. That's a misunderstanding of what's going on here, just like my misunderstanding of Harold Hill's desire for Hester to win just one more A. We naturally assume, like I did, that qualification must be involved. The earning of a good grade. Because qualification plays such an enormous role in every other area of our lives, we naturally assume, even if it's completely subconscious, that it's what's at play tonight, too. It's what all our other adornments are about. So it makes sense that if we're going to add an adornment across on our forehead, it should serve the same purpose. Right? Think of the jewelry that you wear or don't wear the designer labels that you buy or don't buy, the haircuts you pay for or don't. All these things are designed to say something to the world about your qualifications, even if it's just about how above it you all are and how little you care about qualifications. That itself is a statement about 
qualifications. And those are just the adornments that we put on the outside of our bodies. We have other adornments too, don't we? Think about it like the report card of your life, what college you went to or were too good for, the company that your father started, or how small your carbon footprint is, what hard-won life experience you have, or how free from worldly entanglements you are, how little you might care about what other people think of you, or how little you claim you care about what other people think of you. We are always evaluating our current report card and looking for that one more A. Because we imagine that our God might be like my misunderstood Harold Hill, really hoping that we get our act together and get one more grade that's good enough to qualify us to be with him. But these ashes that I'll put on your forehead tonight tell a different story. These ashes will refuse to be a resume builder. They will not be an adornment on your report card. They will not be a qualification. They will be a scarlet letter. These ashes will say to the world, I am human. They say, I am a sinner. They say, I am weak. They say, I will die. These ashes are a confession of your failures, of your lack of qualification, of the weakness of your report card. So this is how we are beginning this Lenten journey. We begin it with a confession. We'll end it in 40 days with a resurrection. Our I am human tonight will be met on Easter morning with Christ's, but I am almighty God. Our return to dust will be met with Christ's empty tomb. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We put on Jesus and death is defeated forever. That's why when I make the ashen mark on your forehead, I make it into the sign of the cross. Because your ashes tonight will commemorate two things. They commemorate both the first step in the defeat of your death, which is your admission of guilt. And they commemorate the final step, Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection for you. They will symbolize your awareness of your sin, your recognition of your weakness, and your calling out for a Savior. But they will also call to mind what we'll celebrate 40 days from now. A criminal's cross on which the Savior of the world will hang for you.
confession and redemption. As John writes in his first epistle, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And because we know that our God is indeed faithful and just, and because we know that the tomb indeed was empty and that the perishable was covered by the imperishable and the mortal by the immortal, we can today repent and say, I am human. I am weak. I will die. Because we are sure and certain of the good news of the resurrection. We have, John writes, an advocate, someone in our corner with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the perfect sacrificial and atoning offering for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You are weak and frail and human. Jesus Christ is holy and mighty and your Savior and risen. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.